we are studying on our Wednesday nights through the Bible, through the period of what is historically known as the kings. And that period began with King Saul and then David and Solomon, his son, which really was the apex of Israel's existence. And that period goes all the way up until the first destruction of Israel, or a period known as the captivity, uh, which happened some 350 years after Saul, David, and Solomon. And we have learned that after the season where Solomon was reigning, that the kingdom of Israel was bifurcated. They split off ten tribes to the north and kind of formed their own subsidiary nation, uh, made Samaria their capital, and have been kind of existing unto themselves as an entity. Meanwhile, two tribes have stayed with Jerusalem as their capital, Judah and Benjamin, and we've been following as we've transitioned back and forth between the two kingdoms, watching how uh, God is working with them and through them um, and what's ultimately taking place. Now, the southern kingdom, and this is just for a little bit of review because it's been a couple of weeks, The southern kingdom, whose capital is in Jerusalem, has been ruled by the Davidic dynasty. That is that it's always been descendants of David that have worn that crown and sat on that throne because that's what God promised to David, that it would always be one of his descendants until the Messiah would come. But the northern kingdom of Israel has been ruled by random people that have been placed there by God, and there's no familial continuity necessarily. There have been some dynasties that have continued for two or three or four generations, but then ultimately that line gets so corrupted that God wipes it out and he raises up a new one altogether. And so um, we followed them. I told you last time in our study that the three that you want to remember are the dynasty of Jeroboam, who was the first king of that northern segment of Israel, the ten tribes. And the reason you want to remember it is because he's the one that brought in or instituted the calves that became the stumbling block or the root of idolatry for the nation. And so he's the measuring line that all the other Israeli kings are compared to. Did they do like Jeroboam and lead the people into idolatry or not? So Jeroboam, you also want to remember the dynasty of Omri. And the reason is because from Omri came Ahab and Jezebel. And they were the ones that moved Israel into idolatry hyperdrive. You know, really brought corruption into uh, the nation and um, just fast-forwarded their destruction by many, many decades through their wickedness. And so we followed them through the ministry of Elijah and then into the ministry of Elisha. And then the third one that you want to remember is the dynasty of Jehu because he was the one that God raised up to clean house. And so he came in, he wiped out Jezebel and Ahab and all of their descendants. He kind of got Israel back on the right path for just a little bit of time and then he turned sideways and now his descendants are kind of following the same pattern of uh, idolatry and disgustingness and all. But where we find ourselves here is kind of in the middle of that Jehu dynasty. And we're about halfway through chronologically, even though we only have 12 chapters left to study in 2 Kings, those 12 chapters make up a period of about uh, 250 years or so, the the, the last 12 chapters that we'll see. And so uh, we're in the middle chronologically of Jehu's dynasty and where we pick up in the middle of chapter 13 is with the death of the prophet Elisha, who had been the successor to Elijah. And so if you would, draw your attention to uh, verse 14. It says, Now Elisha was fallen sick of the sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face, And said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And so Elisha at this time is sick. And this sickness will be the sickness that ultimately takes uh, his life. At this time, he is between 80 and 100 years old. He served in the ministry of a prophet for the past 60 years within Israel. You recall that he had asked Elijah 
his successor, or his forerunner rather, for a double portion of the spirit that was upon him. And it was granted to him. He got the prayer that was answered, and we saw the the miracles that he did as a result of that. Elisha has been on the scene since Ahab was the king, and now he's seen three generations of Jehu's dynasty, and now we see that he's in a place of sickness. And he's visited in this time by Joash, and that's not the good Joash that we studied last week, but this is Joash, one of Jehu's sons, uh, who is the king at this time, and he's visited in this. Now, it tells us that Elisha was sick, and that that sickness resulted in death. There is a doctrine amongst some of the prosperity gospel uh, camps Um, that teaches that if you are sick, then that is because for some reason you are out of the will of God. That either there's sin in your life or you don't have strong enough faith to see to it that God heals you of that disease. And that's a doctrine that's been around for a long time and it just doesn't seem to go away. And where that comes from, of course, because everything has to have a root somewhere in Scripture, It's from scriptures that say, like Jesus said, that all things are possible to them that believe. Or other scriptures where in James it says that the prayer of faith will cause the sick to recover. And so they deduce from that that if you have faith, then the result of that faith is that you should never be sick. And if you find yourself sick, it's because you don't have faith. Now the problem with that, among many is that it completely ignores the fact that the Bible says that we are, in this life, going to suffer various trials, distresses, persecutions, and sicknesses. There are things that happen to us in this life that have nothing to do with a lack of faith or having sin in our life. It's just part of what we go through. Suffering is a guarantee. We read of King David in the Bible, who at the end of his life could not get warm, and they had to have a living hot water bag come and lie with him just to keep him warm. There was sickness in his life. We read about Job, who God himself said that he's a righteous man, and that there was nothing that Satan could even accuse Job of, but we see that in the perfect will of God, he was covered with boils, and there was a sickness that he was going through. We read about the Apostle Paul, who to the Galatians said that there was something going on with his eyesight that was chronic to the point where he had a hard time seeing. And it was something that he just had to deal with. But God never says to Paul that your sickness with your eyes is because you don't have faith. Paul would write to Timothy and he would say, use a little wine because your often stomach is sick, he would say. And he didn't say, well, you just don't have enough faith, Timothy, and that's why you're having these problems. If you would just name it and claim it, or blab it and grab it, then you would be all better. No, Paul said, you need to medicate a little bit in this instance because of what's going on in your life. And Paul would praise a man by the name of Epaphroditus to the church in Colossae because he was sick even to the point of dying because of his ministry towards them. In other words, it was in his faithfulness to God that sickness came to his life. And so we see all the way throughout the Bible that sickness happens, and it's not necessarily because of uh, sin or because of a lack of faith. Now, here's the damage that believing a doctrine like that can do. Is that when someone comes into a point in their life when they need God the most, because there's a sickness or because there's a distress or an issue going on, They have the least confidence and boldness to come to him because they've been taught that the reason they're experiencing that is because their lives are not pleasing to God. And so the time that they need him the most, they experience him the least. And that's a travesty. It shouldn't be that way. The fact of the matter is that no one is going to be able to undo all of the effects of the curse that began in the Garden of Eden until Jesus Christ returns. And unfortunately, that includes suffering and sometimes sickness for the child of God. And the fact, again, is that all of us are going to die, and probably it's going to be of the last thing that we get sick of. Hopefully it's not politics, you know, or something. (laughs) Or even worse. But Elisha, we see him here getting sick. And Joash now, this king of Israel, who is not a good king, comes to him. And he calls him the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. 
And what he's basically saying to Elisha in this is that Elisha, the the value that you bring to the nation of Israel exceeds the resource that we have in our entire ministry, our entire existence. And at first you might think, well, that's kind of cool, you know, that he would get that kind of acclaim. You're more valuable to us than the military. But we read in our last study that the military had been reversed to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, reduced to 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. So, so I guess, you know, Elisha could take this either way. You know, okay, I, I received the compliment, but it's not really saying much at this point. But Elisha responds in verse 15, and it says, And Elisha said unto him, Take a bow and arrows. And so he took unto him a bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it, and Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward, or towards the area of Syria which had been a constant thorn and enemy to Israel now for many years. And so he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you shall smite the Syrians in Aphek till you have consumed them. Now, In those days, before cannons and scud missiles and rocket launchers, what he was doing was an open declaration of war. In modern times, if you launch a missile into an enemy territory, what you are saying is, we are challenging you to war. We are being the aggressor. And that's the statement that Elisha, by the Spirit of God, is causing Joash to make towards the Syrians. It's an open declaration of war by firing an arrow at them in this way. And then he lets him in on God's purpose and plan for Joash's reign. He says, God is going to deliver you from the affliction and the bondage that you've been under because of the Syrians, and you're going to deliver them. And so God is informing Joash of the calling that he's placed upon his life. God wants to use Joash to bring deliverance to Israel. And he's using Elisha as the medium to communicate that message. And as Elisha always does, he does it with the picture of doing something uh, to illustrate the message that he's given. Now, watch what happens next. Verse 18. And so he said, and this is Elisha speaking to Joash, take the arrows. So pick up a handful of arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground, or beat them to the ground. Now some believe that he was telling him to shoot the arrows into the ground. Others, that he was just to take the handful of arrows and smack the ground with them. It's kind of, doesn't really matter exactly which one it is. What he's saying is, take these arrows now and beat the ground with them. And it says that he smote the ground thrice, three times, And then he stopped. And the man of God was wroth or angry with him and said, you should have smitten five or six times. Then you would have smitten Syria till you had consumed it. Whereas now you shall smite Syria but thrice. Now this seems completely out of character for Elisha, the man that we've seen thus far. Elisha is a totally different character than what we saw in Elijah. Elijah was the hothead. He was the one that was always passionate and raising his voice. Elisha, he's the one that's a people person. He's the one who's gentle, dealing with widows, laying on children to resurrect them to life. And this is completely out of character for him. So why is Elisha angry now at the three times that Joash hit the ground? He wasn't told to hit the ground five or six times. He just said, smite the ground. So why is Elisha angry at this whole thing? Well, Joash already knew that this whole arrow thing was an object lesson concerning the calling that God had placed upon his life. He already knows that. Now, for Elisha, this is nothing new. His entire ministry has been object lessons with props. Remember, the first thing that he did was when the well was defiled, he said, grab me a bowl with some salt, and he poured the salt from the bowl into the well, and it was miraculously healed. He told the guys later on to take shovels and dig holes. 
He told a woman later on to fill jars, borrowed jars with oil. He told uh, the young men who had poisoned the pottage to grab a bowl and he put uh, grain in the bowl and he poured the grain into the pottage and it was miraculously healed. He told Naaman to dip into the Jordan River seven times. Nothing magical about that. It was just simply an object lesson for what it was that he was doing internally that it was happening outwardly. When the man lost the axe head, he said, throw a stick into the water. Elijah's whole entire ministry has been this type of prophetic information where he uses something to to declare a point. And Joash already knows that these arrows are significant in what God is doing. So why is Elisha mad? I believe part of the reason is because he does it so passively and he gives himself so little to it that he almost had the attitude of, oh, how cute. A message with props. And he kind of takes the arrows and he goes, okay. And he just kind of taps the arrows on the ground a couple times. Maybe he did something cute like he was playing the drums. Who knows, you know. But at the end of the day, the issue of the thing is that he didn't do with zeal or intensity the thing that God had given him to do. He showed a very lackadaisical approach to the very calling and reason that God had placed him on the scene. And the response of Elisha to him is he said, you should have smitten the ground five or six times, then you would have smitten Syria till you had consumed it. In other words, if you had approached what God has given you to do with zeal and intensity, then you would have been successful in doing it. But now, because of your lackadaisical attitude towards the call of God upon your life, You're only going to experience partial victory and it won't be what it should. What's the message for you and me? Whatever it is that God has given you to do, whatever your calling is and the reason that God has placed you on this planet, receive that calling and then run with the ball. Or like in modern language they would say, drive it like you stole it. Take what God's given you to do and do it with all your heart. If God's called you to be a mother, then be a mother to the best of your ability and do it to the glory of God. He put you on this earth for that cause, so give yourself wholly to it, whatever it is. If God's called you to operate a business, then run that business to the glory of God, if that's his calling for your life. If God's called you to teach a Sunday school class or participate in children's ministry, if God's given you that to do, then do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. Isn't he worthy? And if God's called you to do it, then he has a reason for that calling that goes way beyond just giving you something to do in the interim. He wants to use what you're doing and what he's given you to do to do things that will last forever and ever and ever. And sometimes, if we don't approach it with that kind of intensity, then we might go through the motions, but we miss out on what God intended that to do, whether it's for us or for someone else or for a future generation. So no matter what God has called you to do, do it with all your heart. So he says, you should have done it with zeal, and the outcome now is going to be that you shall only smite them thrice. Isn't it interesting that the outcome of the calling is determined before he ever even lifts a finger to do it? It's already determined how it's going to finish before he even starts. That's always how it is with God. Do you understand? What he has for you to do doesn't, isn't determined by how well you do it once you get there, but how well you're prepared or preparing for what it is that God has for you to do. It happens first. It happens in prayer. It happens as you seek him and wait upon him. It happens in the way that you approach what he's done for you. That's what determines the outcome, not the battle. That's later. That's secondary. That's cleanup. I've used this illustration before, but it's forever burned in my mind, and it's helped me in so many ways. But a number of years ago, uh, I, I came across uh, a DVD set of Mike Tyson's whole career. Iron Mike Tyson, probably one of the most powerful heavyweights in the boxing realm or world. And, and nobody could even, you know, come near him until the end of his career when he fell apart. But in his younger days, if, if someone could last two rounds with Mike Tyson. And I remember his ninth or tenth fight, he fought a guy named Donnie Long. And Donnie Long did not come to fight. He came for something else. And the way you knew it is that when the fight began, as Donnie Long was sitting in the corner waiting for the fight to start, he looked over at the camera with this childish, cute smile, and he winked at the camera. He just went, 
And I remember watching that, not even having seen the fight yet, and I looked at Georgia, who probably wasn't watching with me, but she was in the room, and I said, that fight's over. He just lost. It's over right now. And the fight lasted nine seconds. It was over. And the reason, see, because outcome is in preparation. He didn't come to fight. He came to wink. (laughs) And so he was winked out. You know, he was gone. You know, it was over. Isn't God worthy that we should give him our absolute best? And so Joash is told it's not going to be like it should. And so Elisha died and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, these Moabite raiders, and they cast the man, quickly, into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. So at certain times, these Moabites would come in, much like it had been in the days of Judges, And these guys are burying a corpse, and as they're coming, they see this band of Moabite raiders coming. So they say, quick, get rid of the corpse. we got to get out of here. And the closest tomb just happens to be Elisha, so they open it up, lower him down. And as he hits the ground, they hear, hey, get me out of here. You say, what in the world is this? And where is that tomb? Because I want to die right next to it, you know. They found the secret. I don't think that that was the point. God's saying, okay, find the bones of Elisha. But I think the message is this. Is that when you live your life completely for the glory of God, and when you finish well what he's given you to do, and you live your life in a way that honors him, then what you do in your life continues to give life to those that are left behind. See, that's what Elisha did. His bones, his what he left behind, continued to bring life even after he was gone. I so appreciate an author when they're dead. I don't know if there's anybody else like me, but when someone recommends a book, the first question I ask, I usually don't say it out loud because I don't want to sound like a weirdo, but I'll say is, to myself, is the author still alive? And if I find out, no, the author's dead, I go, oh, good, I want to read it. Because there's something about someone who finishes the course and does well that their words carried that much more weight and authority. And God was putting his seal upon Elisha's ministry by letting this take place at the end of it. God give us the kind of lives that continue to bear fruit long after we're gone. But Haziel, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. And the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because not because of their own works or their own goodness, but because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. So Hazael, the king of Syria, died. And Ben-Hadad, or Ben-Hadad, however you want to say it, the son, reigned in his stead. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. So exactly as Elisha had stated it would take place is how it happened. Three times, but it wasn't absolute deliverance. It was only for a season. Now in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. That's the Joash we just talked about who went to Elisha's uh, bedside. During his reign, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, reigned. Now, switch from the north to the south. We go from Samaria to Jerusalem as we move from chapter 13 into chapter 14. And now we're going to read about Amaziah, who is the son of Joash. Remember Joash? He was the one who was hidden while he was under one year old from Athaliah or Athaliah, the one who went to try to kill all of David's seed. And he was raised up by Jehoiada the priest and he was made king at the ripe old age of seven. And he was a good king all the days that he had Jehoiada the priest to instruct him. But at the end of his life, things went sideways and he reinstituted some idolatry into the southern kingdom of Judah. And as a result of that, uh, he killed 
the son of Jehoiada, a, a prophet and priest by the name of Zechariah. And I really like Joash that did that. And here's why. Because he's just like us. How so? What did he do? He killed the son of the one who made him everything he was. And at the end of his life, he was declared righteous even though he was a wretch. Isn't that just like us? We killed the son of the one who gave us everything we have. The son of God, Jesus Christ. And because of his death, the son, we're declared righteous even though we're guilty of it by faith in his name. And so Joash declared righteous even though he was a wretch. And now his son, Amaziah, takes over for him. And it says that he was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Now that should be a clue to you that this is a saved man. Even though the things that he will do later on are crooked and he will you know, turn sour, in the eyes of the Lord he was declared righteous. He had faith. Yet not like David, his father, he did according to all things as Joash, his father, did. And that's exactly what happened. Just as Joash started good and then turned sideways later on, that's exactly what Amaziah, his son, will do. He will start good, but he'll go sideways later on. Howbeit the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people did sacrifice and they burnt incense on the high places. Now, we've read about that. I mean, this is almost like scripture memory at this point to read about the high places. That was the big problem with Judah and the altars of the golden calves. That was the big problem with Israel in the north. So we've seen this over and over and over again. And again, the high places, just a place of convenience worship and kind of maybe a little bit of syncretism, instituting some mixing of religions sort of a thing, but it was condemned by God, but the people did it anyways, and the king allowed for it. And it says that it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that he slew his servants, which had slain the king, his father. You remember that Joash had been assassinated because he killed or stoned Uh, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. And so now the assassins are brought to justice once Amaziah establishes the throne. But, verse 6 tells us, the children of the murderers he slew not, according unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And so as Amaziah brings these assassins to justice, he takes his cues from the Bible, essentially, from the law of Moses, and he doesn't allow his slaughter of these men to go into successive generations. He said, these men's committed the crime, they're the ones that will pay the price. Their children don't have to pay for them. That's the way that Moses instituted. Now, this is a significant verse, and I think it's worthy of at least remembering that it's here, even if you don't commit it to memory. Why? Because there's another teaching that exists in some circles of the church, and that is kind of this concept of the generational curse. That because of things that took place in my family history, my parents and grandparents and those generations that go back, I am under the curse of the sins that they committed. It's a generational curse, they call it. And where they get this concept from is actually from a scripture. It's from Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. In the second commandment, he said that you are not to bow down to any idol. And then God added this on. He said, for the Lord will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. And mercy, it would extend to those that loved him. And so some have kind of grabbed a hold of that verse in Exodus chapter 20, and they've said, well, God said he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And so therefore... The reason that I can't get free from certain sins is because those sins existed in the previous generations and therefore I am bound by them. Now here's the problem with that. 
is that it's never allowable to establish a doctrine based upon what you read in one verse. In order to understand a concept, you've got to take what the whole Bible says about something. And yes, in the law, it says that. But here, we see him saying, no. Deuteronomy, later on, God said, the children shall not be held responsible for the sins of their fathers in that context. Neither the fathers for the sins of the children. Here it's re-established again in the justice that's brought upon these assassins. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, God spoke through the prophet and he said this, I never want to hear this proverb spoken again in my presence. And here's the proverb. That because our fathers ate sour grapes, therefore our teeth are rotten. God says, I don't want to hear it. And then he explains exactly what he means. And that is justifying the problems that you have because of something that took place in a previous generation of those that went before you. God says it doesn't work that way. If a wicked man has a righteous son, the wicked man will be judged and the son will be declared righteous. And if a righteous son grows up and then he has a wicked son, then that son will be declared wicked. Each man will bear his own burden. Now here's the problem with those that hold on to the concept of generational sin is that you are declaring that God isn't powerful through the blood of Jesus and the promise of his word to set you free from something that he's made provision for through the cross. Furthermore, if you're in Christ here this morning, you're under a completely different covenant than those that were under the law in the first place. The Bible says in Colossians that He has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and that he nailed it to his cross. And the Bible says, Jesus said, that his truth makes us free. And so God's desire for every one of our lives is that we be free. The Bible says that it is the will of God that we be holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, sanctified or purified unto the Lord. The Bible says that his will is that we be perfected and sanctified body, soul, and spirit. And so for us to declare, well, that just can't be true of me because of a curse that's on me because of something that happened in a previous generation is to malign the character of God and to degrade the power of his word. And God will not have his word turn back void. If we're in bondage to something here tonight, it's because we want to be in bondage to something here tonight. God has made provision for our freedom. And so the sins of the fathers will not be paid for in the blood of the sons. You say, well, then what did God mean in Exodus chapter 20 when he said, the sins of the fathers will I visit upon the children to the third and fourth generation? Listen carefully. It's not destiny, it's tendency. In other words, I know personally what the sins of my fathers are. And you know how I know it? Because I'm familiar with my own sins. And I know some things about what took place in previous generations in my life. And so as those things crop up and seek to grab a hold of me, I recognize them as things that I'm vulnerable to. So what do I do with that? I take it and I pass it on to my sons and my daughters. And I say, listen, kids, we are fallen. We are in a broken world. And these are the things that have taken place in our family, in our history. So watch out for these things. But God is able. He's stronger. It's not destiny. Oh, I'm bound. I have to sin. No. It's tendency. And we all feel that. We understand. We know who our parents are. We know what our struggles are. But we're not to make excuses for them and say, no, I'm under a curse. Anyway, verse 7. It says, he slew of Edom... In the Valley of Salt, 10,000, and he took Selah by war, and he called the name of it Jokthiel unto this day. So the great work of Amaziah's life is that he won a victory over the Edomites, which were an enemy of Israel, kind of to the southeast of where they were situated there. That was the great work of his life. Now, verse 8, his downfall. I really hope that when we stand before the Lord, the great work of our life is more than one verse. It says, then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, now in the north, sends a message to the king of Israel, saying, 
Come and let us look one another in the face. So he's coming off the heels of a victory in Edom, and he challenges the king of Israel now to a war. Now there's more to this story. What took place when Amaziah went to war with the Edomites is that he hired 100,000 men from Israel to come help him in the battle against Edom. And a prophet, you can read this in Chronicles, had come to Amaziah and said, you shouldn't have done that because God's not going to honor it. God's not with Israel. God's with you. You need to send them home. And Amaziah argued with the prophet and he said, but wait, I paid a lot of silver for these guys to come down. And the prophet said, don't worry about the silver. God will take care of that, but you better send them home. And so he does. He says, listen, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have hired you guys. Go home. And those guys got angry. They felt insulted that they had been brought in and then they were dismissed. And so on their way home, they stopped in Judah and they broke down some things. They caused some problems there. They killed some people. And then they went back up to Israel. So now Amaziah comes back from the Edomite battle. He hears what those 100,000 men from Israel did. And so he challenges them to a fight. Now he's in error here because it's really his fault. He shouldn't have hired them to begin with. So he should just own this and say, well, this is my fault and deal with it. But instead, he challenges the king of Israel to a fight. Doesn't this sound like high school? It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So verse 9 says, Then Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, the king of Judah. Sends him a text message. And it's pretty. it could be a text message. It might take up two, but just two. And he says, The thistle, which would be like a milkweed, real brittle, that was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar tree that was in Lebanon, saying, give thy daughter to my son as a wife. And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trod down the thistle or the milkweed. Now, for a king to send a message to another king and say, hey, let's have our kids get married, or anyone, if anyone sends a message to anyone and says, let our king kids get married, They're basically assuming that they're on the same social level. In other words, hey, your daughter, my son, make a good match. Our families are equal. This would be a good thing. And so what he's saying is what you're doing by challenging me to a war is that you're like a milkweed challenging a cedar tree, and you're going to get stomped. And so now he gives counsel after giving perspective. Verse 10. You have indeed smitten Edom. And your heart has lifted you up with pride. Glory in it and stay at home. For why should you meddle to your hurt that you should fall, even you and Judah with you? Now, here's what this is like. This would be like if you had a sixth grader that was always getting bullied. I mean, we all kind of understand the context of that. I understand it personally because I was the sixth grader getting bullied, you know. But you're getting bullied. Every day you're getting bullied. And so as the sixth grader, you turn around and you stand up to the bully and you knock him out and you become an instant hero. No one ever picks on you anymore because you've stood up for yourself and you've you've done it. And so now you feel like emboldened and empowered. So here's what you do as that sixth grade nerd that has a little bit of uh, courage is that you know of someone who is in 12th grade who's always getting bullied. And that's what was happening, because Israel was getting bullied by Syria, just like Judah was getting bullied by Edom. And so the sixth grade nerd goes to the twelfth grade nerd, and he says, step up. Let's do this. Let's throw down right here. And the twelfth grade nerd looks down at the sixth grade nerd, and he says, look, you stood up to the bullies, and I'm so proud of you. You did such a good job, but don't get yourself into something that you're really going to regret getting yourself into. You're proud. Go enjoy it, but don't meddle to your own hurt. Go home. And so he gives them a chance. But pride is a scary thing, isn't it? Verse 11. But Amaziah would not hear. Therefore, Jehoash, the king of Israel, went up. And he and Amaziah, the king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel, and they fled every man to their tents. 
And Jehoash, the king of Israel, took Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he came to Jerusalem, and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim unto the corner gate, 400 cubits, or 600 feet of the northern wall. So he takes him and says, watch what I'm going to do now, now that you didn't listen. And he tears down the wall. And then, verse 14, he took all the gold and the silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and hostages, and he returned now to Samaria. So he breaks down the defenses and he takes a great spoil and he carries away some people as captives and he leaves Amaziah with his tail tucked. What this is, is this is a story of the dangers of pride. He says, why have you allowed your victory to cause your heart to be lifted up so that you'll now meddle in something that's going to cause your destruction? I don't know if you can relate to that, but I know that I can. And it'll happen in our lives that we'll have a victory. We'll experience some form of victory. Maybe it's over something that we struggled with for a long time. Or maybe we come out on top of a conflict or a circumstance that's been troubling us for a long time. Or maybe we just stand up in faith and in courage and we see ourselves used by God in some way that we were afraid of. We speak out or we share the gospel and someone gets saved. Or we lead a Bible study and God blesses it. Or we share a song. We do something in the name of the Lord and he just blesses it and comes through in a way that we could never even imagine. The tendency so often then is to get lifted up with pride, isn't it? Man, I've broken through. Now I've arrived. I am now one of the blessed ones. There's Peter, there's Paul, there's Jude, and then there's me. I'm in. I've done it. You know, and, and you kind of get there, and you can get emboldened in a prideful mindset to then meddle into areas where you have no business being. Maybe presuming that God wants to use you in a way that's bigger than what he has designed for you to be used. Or... Maybe you put yourself in a situation where in times past you would be vulnerable, maybe even to fall into sin. But you think, well, I'm so spiritual now, and God's got his hand on my life in such a way that I'm strong enough that I can handle this or go into that area that before would destroy me. Now I can do it. I'm I'm strong. I'm good. Would to God that we would have the ability as the people of God to be used of him, blessed by him, to have victory from him, but then return to a place of humility and just allow God to lead us moment by moment, step by step, that we wouldn't get lifted up and meddle with things to cause our demise and our destruction. Because when we fall in pride, and that's what the Bible says, that pride comes before a fall, what always happens is that we suffer a loss in our defenses, just as they had their walls broken down. We find that those areas of vulnerability that we'd fortified in our lives, we find that we lose those defenses. We also find that we lose resources and we lose territory that we had previously gained. Now we find ourselves having to regain that territory again. God, give us humility. God doesn't need any one of us. He doesn't need us, not at all. We constantly here at the church, every one of us that serve in any capacity, operate on the finger in the bucket of water principle. And that is this, is that if you stick your finger into a bucket of water filled with water and pull it out again, as long as it took that water to fill the gap that your finger was in, that's how long it will take God to replace you. And that's the way we look at ministry around here. We don't own it. God, if you want to use us, if you're using us in whatever we're doing, then praise you, Lord, that you would use lowly sinners to accomplish your work in this world or in this community in any way. But may we never get lifted up in pride and think that we're something when the glory belongs all to you, Lord, for everything you do and everything that's accomplished, even to the smallest things. God, give us humility. He suffered from pride. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, and his might, And how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his stead. So Jeroboam is the fourth uh, successive uh, son of Jehu, Jehu dynasty that would raise up. And verse 17, Amaziah, the son of Joash, Judah, king of Judah, lived after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, for 15 years. 
And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish, and they slew him there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. One of the downfalls of Amaziah that's not mentioned here but is mentioned in Chronicles is that when he returned from the battle in Edom, where he experienced his victory, he took with him some of the idols of the Edomites, and he bowed himself down to him. And a prophet was sent to him to warn him and say, hey, those idols weren't able to save the Edomites. Why would you bow down to them? But Amaziah didn't receive the word, and he said, you better shut your mouth because I have the authority to have you killed. And the prophet said, okay, I delivered the message, but this shows me that God's going to take you out. And God did take him out. He was assassinated because of what he brought into Israel. So verse 21, and all the people of Judah took Azariah. Now, I've got to have you do something here. You see in your Bible where it says Azariah? Circle it, and close by, write Uzziah, U-Z-Z-I-A-H. Because it's the same person, but Uzziah is the name that's used much more frequently. So as we read about Azariah, uh, it's actually Uzziah, uh, and I will say it as Uzziah. So you'll say, hey, why did he say Uzziah when it says Azariah? Because it's Uzziah, and he's kind of an important figure coming up in the story, so it's important. He was 16 years old, and, and they made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Elath, and he restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. So we move from Judah to Samaria, up north again. And he reigned for 41 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he departed not from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the Sea of the Plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah. Now we recognize that name. That's the same Jonah from the book of Jonah, swallowed by a whale Jonah. The son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Gepher. Now, isn't it interesting that we, we read here, it's the only place in the Bible that we read about Jonah other than the book of Jonah. We think of Jonah as being one who only had a ministry to the Ninevites, a city of the Assyrians, or in modern-day Iraq, people that had nothing to do with the God of Israel. But he also had a ministry in Israel. It was during the reign of this Jeroboam in the north. What I find so interesting about this is that Jonah, who preached in Israel, had no success or fruit from his preaching in Israel. Israel didn't repent from the preaching of Jonah. They didn't turn from their sin. They continued in their downward slide. But yet the same Jonah was sent to Nineveh, a completely pagan people that had nothing to do with God, and giving them just a short message that they had 40 days to repent or God was going to judge them. And they repented, and there was such a revival in Nineveh that they pushed off the judgment of God for 100 years. What's the point? Sometimes God will use us in one scene or scenario And we find that in another scene or scenario, we are completely barren and unable to break through it all. It's up to God what he does with the message that we bring. It's up to us to be faithful to deliver the message. So Jonah uh, alive during this time. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any that was shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. On the contrary, he said that he would sustain them. But he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, which would be the final name associated with Jehu, the Jehu dynasty, reigned in his stead. Now, I'm going to move on. I know that the night is over, but watch how fast we get through chapter 15. You're going to be amazed at this. World record. Watch this. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, 
began Uzziah, the son of Amaziah, the king of Judah, to reign. Sixteen years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, one of the longest tenures of any of the kings. 52 years Uzziah reigned. And his mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father, Amaziah, had done. Now, again, he started well, finished, not so much. Uzziah had a lot of energy. You read about him in Second Chronicles in chapter 26. Uh, it says this. It says that he made in Jerusalem engines and invented, uh, invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks, to shoot arrows and great stones withal, so weapons development. And his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But notice this. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God, and he went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Now it was absolutely forbidden for a king to intrude into the ministry of a priest. But he was so lifted up in pride, he thought, I can do whatever I want. And so he barged through the bulwark of priests that were seeking to resist him, and he went into the temple to offer incense, and at the moment he approached the altar with the incense, the Bible tells us that he was smitten with leprosy because of what he had done. And that's what it tells us here then in verse 5. It says that the Lord smote the king so that he was a leper unto the day of his death. And he dwelt in a several house or a separated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the house, judging the people of the land. So in that he became leprous, he was then cut off from fellowship within the temple. He could no longer fellowship in the temple. And he could no longer serve in the capacity of king. So even though he was still alive and technically he held the crown, his pride disqualified him. Uh, from it. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Azariah slept with his fathers, that's Uzziah, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Now the rest of the chapter highlights six wicked Israeli kings that lived during the reign of Uzziah. So while Uzziah was in Judah, these six kings, there was Zechariah who reigned for six months and then he was assassinated. Then there was Shalom, who reigned for one month, and he was assassinated. Then there was Mehanem, who reigned for ten years, and he wasn't assassinated, but he was certainly in danger of it. And I want to just draw your attention quickly to verse 16, and I want you to see how bad things became for Israel. It says, Then Menahem smote Tifsa and all that were therein, and the coast thereof from Terza, because they opened not to him, therefore he smote it. And all the women therein that were with child, he ripped up. In other words, he would go in and tear open their womb if they were with child, and he would then kill the baby separate from the mother. Now you say, why did God even have to point that out? I mean, even if something like that was taking place, why would it be written in the pages of Scripture? Because God wants every one of us to understand what we are capable of when we remove him from our lives. When you take God out of anything, you don't just get a vacuum. Okay, well, we've removed God, and so that's replaced with nothing. When you take God out, it's always going to be replaced with something, and it's going to be inferior, if not demonic. And that's true for a nation, as we see happening with Israel, but it's also true for our lives. And I would warn you, in the days that we live in, where schedules are getting tighter, where budgets are getting tighter, and more is demanded from us, from our time and from our resources. The easiest thing for us to remove from our lives is the God things in our lives. But understand that when you do that, it's going to be replaced with something, and it's going to take a toll, a bear a cost within our lives. We see it happen to Israel. It always happens by decree. Well, he goes on, then he dies. Then Pekaiah, he reigns for two years. He's assassinated. Then Pekah assassinates him, one of his generals, and he reigns for 20 years and does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And then notice in verse 29, it says that in the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and he took Ijon and Abel-Beth-Meacah and Jeonah 
and Kadesh and Hazer and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. And so we see the beginning of Israel's destruction taking place here. And so then Hoshea, which is the sixth king, uh, he comes on the scene um, after uh, slaying Pekah, and he's the sixth of those kings. And then the chapter closes in verse 32 with the son of Uzziah back in Judah. And this is the bright spot. And I did this so that we could end on a cheery note. Isn't that nice of me? So in the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, to reign over Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Howbeit the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burned incense still in the high places. He built the higher gate of the house of the Lord. Now, interestingly, Jotham was one of the best kings that Israel had. In fact, there is nothing recorded evil about him when you look at his life here or in Chronicles. There's no point in his life that he turns sideways. He has a pretty good reign. And Chronicles tells us that the reason for that is because he prepared his way before the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And in those days, the Lord began to send against Judah Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia. And Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. There's one thing I'll point out here as we just wind down, and that's this, is that thus far, we've seen that it's the wickedness of the kings that causes God to move against the nation. But here, it's the other way around. The king is the one who's righteous, but it was the people that persisted in idolatry, which was the reason why God brought judgment. See, it isn't always the leaders of a nation that bring the judgment upon that nation. Sometimes it's the citizens and the leaders can be good. And we see that here. Well, the worship team can come as we finish up this chapter. Read ahead. Uh, we're going to move quickly through the remaining chapters of Kings as we watch Israel. There's some bright spots when we get into Hezekiah and all the rest, so don't give up. Uh, God still has many things to teach us. But as we uh, wait on the worship team, we looked at 11 Kings tonight. And in every one of those things, there's two things that are pointed out in every one of them. They either did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then on the other side of that, if they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, there was either a however, he didn't, or there wasn't. And Tonight as we close, I'd just like to have you just think in your own life where you stand with both of those phrases. When God looks at your life right now, Does he say they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? Or does he say he or she did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord? The answer to that is completely dependent on what you've done with Jesus Christ. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, and you've put your faith in him to be the Lord of your life, then what God says over you is that you did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Everyone who trusts in Christ gets an A in salvation. That's just the way it is. You either get an A or an F in salvation. If you believe, you did that which was right. But what will God say after that as it concerns your life? Is there a however in your life? When God looks at it, if you were to stand before him right now, Would he say, hey, you did what was right in my eyes. You trusted in my son. However, you didn't destroy the high places. Or you didn't end idolatry. Or you didn't employ my promises and my power in order to gain victory in your life. Or you never realized the calling or the design or the desire that I had for you, the plans that I had for you. You never came up to that potential because of this. What would God say? And if in your life tonight there's a however, and you know what it is if there is, then what has to happen in your life right now for that however to be removed? Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for this word. And we ask, Lord, that as we 
weigh our own lives against the lives of these 11 kings and so many more that we've seen in weeks past. Lord, would you please give us wisdom? And would you give us the ability, Lord, to not just have saving faith, but that we would live lives that are pleasing to you fully to the end. Please give us wisdom. Give us power and strength. And help us to make application from the things that we've heard. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.